Well, there are just 11 days left of 2013. And perhaps, like me, you're starting to wind down now for Christmas or for the New Year break. One thing we can be certain of, though, is that London itself will not be winding down. London just keeps on regardless. Even in the last couple of days, we've had verdicts on two high-profile cases. There's been the very serious accident at the Apollo Theatre. And I've no doubt that as we get closer to the new year, there'll be many more stories to cover. You can, of course, read all about it on Londonist.com. But for me, this time of year is all about taking stock What have been the major stories that have shaped London in the last year? It's the 20th of December 2013. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a stone throw from your front door. It's a tough life doing this job, but this week I find myself cloistered at Bagayo, which is a Moroccan restaurant. It's a very nice place and it's all decked out for Christmas. With me are three of the Londonist team, Matt Brown, the editor of Londonist, Beth Parnell-Hopkinson, a.k.a. Beth P.H., a senior editor with the website, and Rachel Holdsworth, also a senior editor. Hello to you all. Hello, hello. 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 We are here... To look back, in the recent distance, uh, Christmas parties are plenty, and I know, Beth, you've got a week of Christmas parties, so we've got, we've got to kind of get through the the fog of Christmas partydom, and we're going to look back at 2013 in London and look at the way that Londonist has covered some of the stories that have been going on there. And we should start, Matt, by saying something about Londonist.com and what the site's been doing over the last year. Yeah, well, it's been an interesting year because for the first time ever, really, in our history, there's no Olympics to look forward to, so we've had to cover London from a whole new perspective all of a sudden and uh, it was always a bit of a a mystery how the year would unfold whether whether it be as interesting as in the past but of course it was because we're living in London one of the greatest cities on earth and as you'll hear from the show there's been plenty of things good and bad going on in London this year and we've uh, had a really interesting time covering it all. So it hasn't been the case that the world's focus has drifted away from this city? I don't think it ever will, no. What about the attendance, the footfall on Londonist? How are we doing in terms of people coming along and saying hello? We've had a really, really successful year, actually. We're up to almost 2 million page views every month now, which uh, I think that's grown by about uh, a third on what it was last year. So we're certainly seeing the traffic come. And this year we've also been very fortunate to have media partnerships with big players like the Thames Festival and the Museum of London, which has really helped boost our kind of reputation and our cash flow <laughs> and we can blow our trumpets a little further because there's been a wonderful site redesign as well with snappy new photos of everybody and a much sleeker look i would say indeed that came in in about june and uh, it's a lot more visual now um, we've made it responsive so de- depending on what device you're looking at the site on it will uh, expand or contract to better fit your device and it better shows off the full range of content we have on there we have about 12 to 15 stories every single day so it's always been a challenge to make sure those stories all get a fair amount of of, um, space on the site and I think we've addressed that now. We'll dive into individual stories through the year in just a moment. Rachel how's your year looked overall? 
I'm so tired right now, I can barely remember it, which is probably a, a reasonable comment on my year. <laughs> yes, I get the impression that a Christmas break would be welcome. Oh, it really would. You know, I'm actually, I've actually been thinking, I think Christmas Day is going to be the first day in about a year where I've had no work to do that hasn't involved either being on a plane or ferrying my parents around Budapest. <laughs> which, which is kind of specific, but yeah, that's going to be the first day off in about a year, I think. So what happens with Londoners then on sort of Christmas Day, Christmas Eve? How, how does it work? Well, we kind of go into a sort of hibernation. There will be still uh, articles, maybe two or three a day, um, covering the festive period, which will line up in advance. But we all do have a bit of a break over Christmas. You're not going to take advantage of the fact that Rachel seems to be off duty that day and, uh, and pull her in? I'm so addicted to London, I'll be there all the time, just keeping an eye on things. Beth, how about your 2013? Uh, well, it's certainly been a busy one, and there's been quite a lot going on. And as Matt says, we've had to uh, look elsewhere than the Olympics to find our subject matter. But luckily, we haven't been short of things to write about this year. Did you find yourself, in all honesty, getting a little tired of Olympic-based stories? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> what, yeah. what, was the, what was the telltale sign that you were getting weary with those? Um, we ran out of angles, basically. <laughs> yeah, there was just... every it, A lot of it was about transport hysteria, and I think um, everybody expected London to, to grind to a complete standstill. Um, and when it didn't happen, I think people were slightly disappointed but also quite relieved as well um plus there was the whole big thing i think everybody expected the olympics to all go horribly wrong um but it didn't and it all went off marvelously and everyone was happy so uh yeah no i think there was a bit of a a bit of a high after that that hadn't occurred to me it did actually now i think back it did actually breathe fresh life into the coverage as well for there to be that change of tone can you imagine how annoying that would have been to have yet more weeks of oh we told you it wasn't going to work yeah well, 2013's been a year with a very different tenor to it. And we'll take the year chronologically, of course, starting, therefore, with a horrible incident in January, Matt. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame to start the, the year's review in a sombre note, but we did have this uh, horrific helicopter crash on the, uh, I think it was the 16th of January, start of the year, when a, a, in thick fog a, a helicopter hit the uh, one St George's Wharf Tower, a large residential building under construction in Vauxhall, uh, Nine Elms area. Uh, and unfortunately the pilot died and I think one of the person on the ground died and we had a few injuries there as well. And of course um, for, for the everyday people going about it was also chaos on the roads for two or three days after that as well while they did the clear up. So it massively affected that part of town and of course massively tragically affected the families of two people's lives. Yes, and of course at this time of year our thoughts go to those families. We know that you feel a loss ever more keenly at a time like this. The repercussions of that incident have been quite interesting. What have been the main effects of that crash? What lessons have we learned? Well, I think one of the things that was one of the potential causes of this was the lighting on the crane, which apparently uh, wasn't as well illuminated as it could have been, and especially in thick fog. That I mean, that's obviously very important. Uh, maybe the flying regulations in these kinds of weather conditions as well. It's very close to Battersea Heliport, so there's helicopters around there all the time. So you'd have thought developments like this would have been lit up like a Christmas tree to, to make sure, uh, especially in bad weather, that uh, these things wouldn't happen. Well, let's not linger for too long on a, a very unhappy incident like that. Let's see what else was going on. I'm assuming that apart from that, January was a month of good cheer and joy. And recovery from New Year hangovers. <laughs> That's <laughs> yes, quite right. Well, of course, it's the, the cold weather, and it was particularly cold in 2013, Rachel. It was, it was such, such a terrible winter. It was so horrible. It was still cold until March. Um, but January, um, 
it got so cold that rough sleeping charities have a policy where if it's cold enough, it basically if the temperatures are below zero for three nights in a row, there's something called a severe weather emergency provision, and it kicks in, and all the boroughs have to they have to provide a shelter inside for all rough sleepers who want it and that so, so no matter where you know like library shopping center whatever yeah um in fact i was actually um out with uh, an outreach team from broadway the one of the rough sleeping charities about a month ago we went around the city of london and we were chatting about this and she was explaining how it works um and yeah it is basically anywhere that a borough can open up they have to open up some of them if they don't have the space they will sort of go in with another borough um but yeah it can be anywhere it can be a, a school it can be uh, like an old some of them aren't often very nice sometimes they're just old warehouses but there has to be some kind of indoor provision um and that did actually kick in in january it's not that common in occurrence but it did happen so it was that cold well of course because the heat coming off all the buildings does tend to keep london a degree or two warmer than the suburbs doesn't it and the rest of the country certainly yeah it's the urban heat island effect there's an actual name for that one um yeah the center of town is is always um a bit warmer than everywhere else um so yes if it does get cold in london you know it's cold we were talking to john smallshaw for the show a couple of days ago and he was demonstrating the hot air vents outside of buildings which are quite a nice place to bed down but only until 2 a.m which of course is exactly when the night is at its coldest so it's it's glad to know that those uh those uh services are in existence um well, I'm saying that hopefully, hoping that the, a year of cuts haven't um, put those to one side, because of course it's going to be a cold year, a cold winter again this winter. Well, no, they they are still still going. I think it's um, like it might be a legal thing that 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 boroughs and, and um, have to do. Like I said, I was only out a month ago with um, with Broadway, and she was saying that the outreach worker was saying that they still have to do this. We move on to February. Uh, the big stories of February started with... Well, we've got this new TV channel that's on its way. Um, there's been this bidding process being going on for a while to provide a digital channel specifically for the capital. And it was finally won in February by backers at the Evening Standard um, or a company set up from the same stable. And uh, so this is going to be called Live TV, I think. Not the most imaginative of names. No. But anyway, we don't know that much about it still. We just know it's got this fairly broad remit to cover uh, news to cover entertainment to do some archive stuff and to do some community work um, but not too many details have still been released in fact it was due to be launched in september this year and we still don't have it on our tv screens i wonder about the demand for a local tv channel what, what do you think beth i'm not convinced that the demand is there because coverage for local areas is so good on um, things like the bbc i'm not sure that the, the demand will be there for micro coverage so to speak i think i mean other parts of the country have done this already uh, even for quite small towns and it seems like a little bit of a, a hole that London doesn't have its own dedicated channel I mean it's already got many dedicated types of media Londonist is one of them of course and various radio stations but no TV channel so I don't know about demand but it's certainly been proved elsewhere and works elsewhere Okay, so we're still watching this space as far as that goes. I do have a mental image of it though being um, like sit up Britain on Bridget Jones <laughs> <laughs> February, I saw a raft of other stories. What else was happening in February? Well, this might be a good point to talk about um, the fire, fire station cuts. This has been sort of rumbling on all year, really, but February was sort of when we, we got more details and, and when the fire authority really started fighting back. So what's actually happening 
is that to make good on um, budget cuts, and these are budget cuts that have been forced down from City Hall, so this is this is Boris's budget, the fire commissioner has decided that the only way to meet these um, was to close 12 fire stations, withdraw 18 engines, and lose around 520 jobs. And that actually changed around September-ish. I haven't got the details on me, but they, I think it's going to be 10 or 11 fire stations, um, and instead we're going to lose some of the fast response vehicles, so the cars that sort of get there quicker and, and do more of the sort of emergency or specialist lifting and cutting and stuff, so that they're going to go. Just let me jump in. That, that seems like quite a good thing to have, though, doesn't it? Emergency, fast response, cutting and so forth. We're still going to have some of them, um, but we're going to lose, I think it's maybe a third or a quarter of them that we're losing, and obviously the people that operated those are also going to be made redundant to that's to balance keeping these are the fire stations open so basically to meet the budget cuts they they had to to balance it out now there is an argument and this is the argument that the the left members of the london assembly are making that you could save all of these cuts you wouldn't have to make any of them if boris didn't implement his share of the council tax cut which works out at 7p a week per household. But there's another argument that says that, well, yeah, but you could do it this year, but then you, you then have to find the same amount of money forever and you put the oh, by 7p a week. And basically, city hall budgets are a nightmare to look at. You can look at all these different budgets and apparently they're all correct. <laughs> well, outside of the, the budgetary questions, there is the idea abroad that houses are getting safer and preemptive measures by the fire brigade mean that fewer fires break out in the first place, better building regulations and so forth. So whilst it might be quite a comfortable response that we shouldn't have cuts, maybe we can afford a cut or two. I mean, yes, houses are getting safer because you know we've got flame retardant sofas and 90s and stuff now but then you also get onto these these targets there are there are targets that fire engines have to to be at your house in the event of an emergency and it's six minutes for the first engine and eight minutes for the second and these these cuts it's obviously going to affect those response times and and they've gone up by actually a couple of minutes in one or two boroughs but uh, most of them are still within the target times but figures that did come out this year show that actually when you break it down by ward we're already over the target times of six minutes and eight minutes and about half the wards and this has pushed them up even further when you say over are you saying that the fire brigade is turning up faster than is required or they're turning up slower slower so yeah so in about half the wards of london we were already breaking these target times which kind of makes me think well what's the point in having the target times then if half of london already isn't meeting them by borough we're actually doing quite well but by wards it's quite poor yeah we did um take a look at some of the missed targets quite recently and they, they all seem a bit arbitrary and it seems to be the case that if we can't meet a target then we'll rather than try and improve to meet it we'll just move it or get rid of it completely um so it seems that you know the targets are, are actually a lot more flexible depending on what action they want to take that sounds suspiciously political doesn't it rather than uh, something that's been set by people who are just looking at you know, how many lives will be uh, put in danger in a certain number of minutes it, for me that kind of uh, resembles the move of the political class away from setting policy and having everybody run along behind them to them uh, worrying about what's in the newspaper 
Well, I think there's um, an element of parties saying, uh, well, OK, we're going to set these targets and we're going to hold people accountable. But when they're also making cuts at the same time that make meeting those targets impossible, it then allows people to basically put the blame on something other than the cuts. So it's the fire service's fault for not meeting the targets rather than the cuts that have been made to it. Those pesky firefighters. <laughs> An abrupt handbrake turn of a change of subject because we're off to Smithfield. Yes, yeah, so, well, not quite so abrupt as you might think. Smithfield has a long history of burning itself with people, Catholics and Protestants alike, being burnt at the stake. And how fast did the fire brigade turn up? Um, there was no fire brigade back then. <laughs> so they missed their target. These were, these were legally sanctioned by the Queen of England, so uh, so no. But, uh, yes, yeah, Smithfield is one of the most fascinating parts of town. I, I, I love hanging around that part of town. It's got such a rich history, part of which I just alluded to. Now, there's a part of it, the western end of the market, which has been semi-derelict for a good 10, 20 years. Uh, it's had no use. It's just been sat there, very, but fairly ornate Victorian buildings. And plans have been afoot for quite a while now to in some way redevelop those. And there have been various plans over the, the years. And the latest one was released in February this year, um, which offers a, a development that's it's largely retail-led and, and lots of cafes, restaurants, and the visuals of it look very much like what they've done to Spitalfields Market, which, of course, was a very controversial redevelopment. It took over a, a kind of people's place, this old market, and turned it into a centre of commerce of glass and steel housed within the, the kind of facade of the old market. And we're going to see a similar thing at Smithfield, which not everybody's happy about. Oh, well, this echoes what's going on in Borough Market as well, and the argument... Oh, always against this stuff is that it's a gentrification and it really means that people who would previously have got their stuff there at a reasonable price no longer can. So first of all we're in the city of London the square mile one of the richest areas in the land there isn't too much kind of social housing or anything in this area so it doesn't have necessarily have that aspect to the story and it is also a derelict part of the market rather than a piece that's already being used. I think the main argument is that these are quite beautiful old buildings and they're going to be totally changed in function and, and maybe it's kind of not necessarily the best way to use it. I think they should have some kind of museum to the area there because you've not only got this history of the Queen burning people there, you've got um, William Wallace was executed there, you've got the whole, the, the whole cattle market that was there for five, six hundred years, Bartholomew Fair, this great fairground with, with all kinds of uh, animals on show and things like that. It's got such a rich history. The area deserves its own museum and I'd like to see that as part of these plans. It's moved on, of course. That was February. In 10 months, have we heard any more about this plan? I think it's still in planning stages. I think um, so. We only got these kind of brief outline of what the architects are planning. And of course, then it takes many months of sitting with councils and, and uh, different people to assess them. So we still haven't had a recent word on that. Uh, we're on to March. Okay, so um, I mean, it's been uh, hard to miss in the news, particularly over the last year, with the rise in food bank usage. And we've, on several occasions, we've taken a look at food poverty in London. The number of food banks in London has actually risen from six in 2009 to 40, which is a massive increase. And the number of people who are actually using them from um, each food bank from 68 in 2009 to 850 this year. We should say at the start of this year. Yes, yeah, sorry, at the start of this year. I mean, I think this, this has been driven by a number of factors, um, benefit caps, rises in rents, lack of jobs and people, you know, people are just being driven into food poverty and they're having to choose between eating and heating um, as the phrase goes yeah there was um actually just the the other day um i was looking at a couple of uh, reports that came out talking about low income and 
social exclusion, I think, is, is how the Joseph Roundtree Foundation talked about it. The poverty line is worked out by if you're earning less than 60% of median of national income, you are in the poverty line. But median income has been falling which means that the poverty line has come down. So just because few people... For, for those of us who didn't do very well at mathematics, median is which... How do you calculate median? I think you need to... You don't know how... You're pointing away. You're using median, but you don't know median. <laughs> it's the middle value in a, a range of numbers. It isn't median the sort of inverted commas good one? That's <laughs> what you're doing. <laughs> it's the good average. OK. It's not a dodgy way of calculating it, yeah, so it's, it's, it, it's a good way of looking at it. So we're lining up everybody who earns something and pointing at the person in the middle of the line? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Stop me if this is getting too scientific. Yeah, so you've, you've got median incomes. Median incomes have been falling, so the poverty line has also been falling. So just because there are fewer people technically in poverty doesn't actually mean there are more people who are suddenly better off. Still earning the same amount of money, but... They're actually not technically in poverty anymore just because everybody's got a bit poorer. What's also concerning about this is that, um, well, two things really. Firstly, that the link between uh, referrals to food banks um, is being, the, the way to measure that is being taken away um, because of changes in the forms that people have to fill in. And there's been a few reports on this to suggest that there is an attempt being made to kind of fudge uh, the numbers of people who are being referred to food banks as a result of benefit caps or sanctions. And the other thing is as well that because of the rising publicity around food banks, there's sometimes a perception that anybody can just turn up to a food bank and get given a food parcel, which is not the case. And I think there's a bit of a lack of understanding about how people actually get referred and you know what it ultimately means for them. So we've got the distinction between like a soup kitchen and a food bank, very different animals. Exactly. Not a happy story. Do we have a sense, looking back at the year, of whether this problem has uh, worsened or uh, eased up? What, what's your general sense of the drift? Um, it appears to be worsening, although there is more publicity around it. However, looking at the figures, um, it does appear to be worsening, and I don't think it's going to get any better in the short term. Londonist Out Loud is available free as a stream at Londonist.com or a weekly download via iTunes. Hit us up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, tweet at Londonist Sound, and check out images of our guests via the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. Lots of changes of subjects in this episode, which I, I like. Lots of confections to look at here. A 14th century plague pit found its way into the news in March 2013. Yeah, so this is another archaeological discovery from the Crossrail dig. One of the many shafts they've dug uh, as part of this transport project encountered a plague pit in the Charterhouse area. So again, we're in Smithfield here. It's uh, an endless bounty of interesting stuff in Smithfield. And they've uncovered these hundreds of bodies who died during the, the, the Black Death the kind of the 14th century plague there and it's long been suspected that they were buried there there are kind of slightly official records that told people where these things were but we never actually found it before now they've uncovered it as part of crossrail and of course crossrail has been uh, such a boon to archaeologists only a year before we found these huge graveyards near near the old bedlam hospital in liverpool street area and there have been many discoveries of i I found um some archaeologists tell me about some roman shoes that they discovered recently that also remarkably good condition um it's been an absolute bumper couple of years for archaeologists and it's going to continue for another year or two 
Ah, so you're going to be rubbing your hands together for Crossrail 2. Yeah, so this is another thing that's been developing over the past year. Crossrail 2 is the north-south equivalent of the east-west Crossrail 1, which is currently under construction. Now, the second line is still very much at the early planning stages. They've started work on semi-detailed plans for how the stations would look and how the, which directions the tunnels would go, but they still need to do a lot of um, planning for how it would be financed and the exact routes and things like that. And you're going to be campaigning for them to put stations at uh, areas of historical significance just on the off chance? Indeed. I think, well, a lot of the central London ones will be built beneath existing stations. So Crossrail 2 is going to join Crossrail 1 at Tottenham Court Road, I think. So that would be one hell of a hub when they build that one. We're on to April 2013, and Rachel, we come to you, one of your greatest heroes, sadly passed away that month. Yes, I mean, who who else would a a girl who grew up in Yorkshire in the 1980s idolise but Margaret Thatcher? (laughs) Just for anyone who doesn't get that, that was sarcasm. Um, Yes. And that wasn't. (laughs) Yeah, so so Thatcher died, obviously been very ill for for some time. We had the... the (laughs) Sorry, with that preamble, (laughs) we could read so much into that comment... (laughs) You really could. I wasn't even trying. Um, yeah, so she had... I think she'd had uh, some form of dementia for some time, let's say. Even that sounds bad. OK. Yeah, so she, she died at the Ritz. Um, we had the whole big funeral. And uh, Boris Johnson decided to come out and say that, that the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square should have a statue of her, which I'm sure would have gone down really well and wouldn't have been attacked at all. Also, Trafalgar Square, I mean, isn't that where the poll tax riots happened? I mean, that's just asking for trouble. The, the legacy of, of, um, of Margaret Thatcher's uh, policy changes, let's say, are still going on and, and there are still far, far too many people who are affected by what happened in the 80s, I think, to even think about publicly commemorating her without somebody decapitating it with a cricket bat, as has happened. Though at least if they did put her on the fourth plinth, it would be a handy rallying point for any future protests. <laughs> I think there's been uh, some comment that it might be a better work of art than some of those that have appeared on the fourth plinth. Well, just in general, what do you make of the fair that's been served up on the fourth plinth this year? Well, this year it's the giant blue cock, isn't it? And I, 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 a massive cock. Obviously a chicken I'm talking about here. Um, I quite like it because it's such a a vibrant hue. It really stands out on the plinth amongst all these white Portland stone buildings. And I I like contrast and I like things to be a little bit different next to each other. I'm not one of these people who believes everything should blend in effortlessly. So I've rather enjoyed that one. Wasn't there a certain amount of manufactured outrage about it, though? Well, from Boris, amongst others, didn't he help it along with an innuendo or three? Well, the innuendo angle's been perfect for headline writers and our site in particular. We've, uh, We've really ran with the big big blue cock idea <laughs> and we've got some tube news this is the first time we've mentioned the tube in this episode yeah yeah we've got to april and we uh, we haven't even really talked about the tube yeah so there were there were a couple of things that happened with the tube um first of all well bank was unsurprisingly voted the most hated tube station in a uh, in a yougov poll it's not really surprising when it's massive and there are work there's work going on but i still can't believe that london bridge was voted one of the most loved london bridge that's where pleasant journeys go to die <laughs> sorry you came to london bridge today unfortunately we won't be open to uh, passengers for trains because of passengers for trains yeah london bridge is just awful i live on south eastern so it's often where i have to get off and if, if you if you try to get on the tube but rush out more often than not you are held at the gate line it's a horrible horrible pit of hell 
I think I'd... Sorry, can I just... Uh, uh, up until now, the conversation has been quite ordered and uh, mannerly, and uh, suddenly all the hands are going up here, yes. I think I'd certainly have to put Canary Wharf in there as well for exactly the same reason. The amount of times I've been held at the barriers there um, because of overcrowding, and it's just a horrible station. It, I mean, it looks fantastic, but from a user's perspective, it's just horrible to use. There's barriers everywhere, and you end up getting charged twice. It, yeah, it's just awful. Well, Canary Wolf was actually voted the best, wasn't it, as well? So it's quite surprising. I'm, I've got to say, I, I, I never use the tube in rush hour, so I've got quite a panglossian outlook on, on the tube network. I always, it's always perfect for me. It never goes wrong. Um, London Bridge, though, the overground station has always been terrible, so I guess the interface with the overground uh, railway and the underground is, is the problem. Um, but that station is being massively revamped at the moment, so hopefully those problems will be sorted out. And indeed, Bank is, is also being looked at at the moment. So how did Bank, if we all agree that London Bridge is terrible with one uh, canary wolf exception how come bank ended up at the top of this list i actually suspect what's happening here is that it's it's the busiest it's the stations that are busiest although again how london bridge became popular i don't know but the other hated stations were oxford circus elephant castle and king's cross so i suspect you're just looking at volumes of people yeah i'd certainly say that i think london bridge um well and bank for that matter get more interchanges than canary wharf does and the, the other element here will be the architecture so canary wharf is widely acknowledged as a, an, an impressive station norman foster designed light airy big so when it's not overcrowded it's a very good station to use my personal fear is when you know when you get into uh, you wouldn't know about this matt the rush hour commute and it starts to get so thick and you realize you're no longer choosing to walk forward but you have to keep walking forward and if there were a, a herd panic you're in a great deal of trouble yeah i had um, on the platform at liverpool street in the central line a few years back um, i found myself being edged closer and closer to the edge of the platform by people pushing it was so bad that my toes were actually over the edge of the platform as i was waiting for the train to come in and i, I was having to force my myself back to stop myself being pushed over the edge fortunately this did not result in a story that's been worthy of our attention in 2013 let's keep moving along what else have we got going on here in april more transport news yeah so the um the conservatives in the london assembly are really keen on banning tube strikes they keep bringing out reports saying that that we they we should ban tube strikes and polls that say we should ban tube strikes so there's one came out in in April. <laughs> Another thing that the Assembly Conservatives uh, really want to do is they don't like minority strikes so you'll sometimes get a strike where maybe a majority of the people who voted in the union voted for it but the majority of all the union members didn't vote for it so you'll, they, they want it to be a majority of all the eligible members. Um, which is always kind of hilarious when you look at well, the voting record for the London Assembly itself, I don't think we've ever had more than 50% of Londoners vote for the London Assembly. Banning tube strikes is a, is a big thing for the London Assembly Conservatives. They, they really want to get onto the RMT. Um, but they uh, released a poll, uh, a YouGov poll, in April um, that had asked... It was only 285 people, actually, which is a really small number, um, whether anybody wanted to uh, ban tube strikes. Um, 47% were in favour of a ban on striking. 32% were in favour of a ballot threshold of 50% plus one of all eligible union members. Um, we actually think it's quite... Well, I actually think it's quite funny uh, that the Conservatives um, are basing this this call for banning tube strikes um, with majority, well, even majority um, voting when 47%, 32% are not over 50%, as you will have noticed. The number of Londoners who have voted in London elections for both the Mayor and the London Assembly, I don't think has ever topped 50%. So um, calling for uh, majority strikes from people who have never had a majority 
of, of all eligible Londoners themselves. Bit cheeky. Well, there are two other stories that we have yet to deal with from the first half of 2013. Neither of them reflect our city in a a very positive light. And, well, the nature of the beast is such that we are recording this episode on the morning of the day when we're expecting to hear the verdict in the trial of those accused of murdering Fusilier Lee Rigby. Of course, that means we can't say anything about that except to note it and the rather chilling headline retrospectively that we see from uh, the 22nd of May 2013 was serious incident reported in Woolwich and of course you will know better than I do right now what the outcome of all that was. The other story there though uh, concerns Stephen Lawrence and of course that story has been going on for, for many many years Stephen's mother now elevated to the Lords. What were the revelations in June of 2013 So this is uh, rather unfortunate revelations um, that the Metropolitan Police launched a um, spying campaign on Stephen Lawrence's family and um, also the friend and the witness to his murder, Dwayne Brooks. They were particularly looking for associations to political groups. The ultimate aim to be to discredit the campaign for justice on his behalf. Yeah, I mean, it's just a really unpleasant thing to find out, particularly from the police who you're supposed to be able to trust that you know this boy was murdered and the police are basically looking for a, a way to, to discredit a campaign to get justice for him. Well of course the statement was produced from I think Commissioner Bernard Hogan Howe and it's, it seems quite familiar, it's something that I think I've been hearing from uh, newspaper editors from politicians from IPSA, from various bodies saying well that was in the past and we've learnt our lesson and things like that simply won't happen again. They unfortunately don't seem to be learning there's that lesson though because um, we've obviously had all the the plebgate investigations which have been going on over the last year too which um, again have recently uh, come to the forefront of the news and there was also uh, a poll around the time as well which said that fewer of the public trusted the police then um, as a result of the plebgate investigation not looking good is it oh, there's part of me that wonders whether we won't still be looking at these exact same stories Stephen lawrence and plebgate at the same time next year they seem to be never ending the sound you hear is our coffee arriving here at bagayo in old street where we'll be back in just a second to discuss the stories from the second half of 2013 london is out loud is sponsored by audible to claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to a CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. A pot of delicious Moroccan tea has arrived, and I'm enjoying it with Matt Brown, the editor of Londonist, Beth Parnell-Hopkinson, and Rachel Holdsworth, senior editors, both. And we're discussing the news stories from 2013. It's been a, a very busy year. We are going to move on to a lovely story here. This is the racist van. Beth. Um, right, so the uh, back in the summer, people may remember that the Home Office launched a campaign um, which was popularly known as the Go Home campaign or um, even more popularly known as the Racist Van campaign where they sent a van with advertisements on the side around areas where there was considered to be a high number of um, illegal immigrants. Was it a white van? Do you know what? I don't know. I think it may have been. I think it was a white van. <laughs> 
Okay, yeah. so the so the principle here is that somebody risks life and limb to come to the UK. Uh, maybe they're trying to claim political asylum, or maybe they've crossed over illegally. Uh, they want to claim benefits. They want to make a better life for themselves. Uh, and the idea here is that you send a van around with a phrase on it saying "Go home," and the immigrant thinks, "You know what? That's that's a good idea. I will." Yeah, it was kind of doomed to fail, really, wasn't it? Um, apparently, uh, well, the Home Office say that they successfully deported. I, d- I can't remember how many people it was. I think it was um, in, around the 60-odd mark. Yeah, it, was it, re- it was a really small number of people, I think, for, for the amount of, of publicity that they then got. But then they also said that the um, they'd had quite a high number of people contacting the text number, but um, the speculation was that the people that were actually contacting it were doing it um, for a laugh, <laughs> so they were they were having you know they were sort of spoofing the um, Home Office text number. Is the idea seriously that they checked as people left the country why they were leaving the country, and some of them said, "Oh, it was that van man. It just got to." There was um, around the time on Twitter as well. There was uh, there was a guy whose Twitter handle I've totally forgotten, but he contacted the, uh, the Home Office Go Home number um, to ask how he could get back to Croydon and if they would take him back to Croydon, which I thought was just superb and typical of a London reaction to that kind of nonsense i was going to speculate that all those people who were texting the text message hotline were actually journalists finding out what happens when you text the same people who were on the top deck of the bus t- with the, the thermometers te- t- t- testing the temperature of the, the new bus for london if we're going to get through all the stories we need to get through we're going to have to c- uh, compress some of them so I, I propose despite the fact that they deserve more airtime than they're about to get we compress lewisham hospital the crystal palace and the walkie scorchy all of them good summer stories <laughs> Well, I'll start with the Walkie Scorchy. This was the kind of silly season summer story of the year. This was this building, the Walkie Talkie, 20 Fenter Church Street, to give it its proper title. New skyscraper under construction in the city of London. Now, it's got this curved facade which focuses the sun's rays like an Archimedes mirror. And we were finding that Jaguar car, there was a Jaguar car parked underneath it and its wing mirror melted from the heat of this thing. So again, uh, the next day, it, the place was riddled with journalists and wannabe journalists who were all there with thermometers and eggs in frying pans and all sorts of things like that. I was amongst them, actually, photographing the journalists, photographing the tower, and it was this big media circus. And now they put this sheet over it temporarily to stop the glare radiating down, although now it's winter, it's probably not as bad. How does that focal point of the light work? Does it move across, or is it just in one place at once, or how does that work? There's a particular shop front where it's at its peak at kind of midday sun, although it does move a little bit either side of there. So it could slice cars in half. And all that <laughs> yeah, like that scene from Goldfinger where, where James Bond's on the, the deck and the, the laser's going between his legs. Uh, what about Lewisham Hospital? So a South London Health Trust, which does not include Lewisham Hospital, went bust. And uh, the government sent in a special administrator to figure out what to do with it. Well, the, what the special administrator decided to do was to uh, break up South London Health Trust and um, to combine Woolwich Hospital in South London Health Trust with Lewisham, which, as I've mentioned, not part of us. Dadland Health Trust um, and therefore not part of all these financial problems and they decided to completely downgrade um, Lewisham's A&E and maternity services Lewisham not happy about this um, had an awful lot of protests like marches launched um, a legal campaign so that actually is completely illegal the special administrator didn't have the legal powers to do this and the High Court um, agreed and then Jeremy Hunt launched an appeal and they still agreed with Lewisham Hospital. So now what the government appears to be doing is uh, changing the law to allow them to do whatever they want with various hospitals. So Lewisham is safe for the moment, 
but who knows how long the rest of it will. And there, there are there are A&E closures in northwest London and all over the place. And the A&Es, it, it's it's a difficult situation because healthcare in the future will definitely get to the point where we need bigger, more specialised units, and smaller ones will close. But at the moment, um, A&E waiting times are unbelievable in London because we haven't got the facilities to keep people out of A&E. So it just feels like closing A&Es at the moment is an insane policy. don't like these moments where you see the facade breaking and you see politicians... David Cameron did it recently with the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority's announcement that politicians would be getting a pay rise and you heard Cameron uh, saying, well, we, we might have to take this further, you know, a set of rules is set up and then it's broken. And it's all too flagrant. Crystal Palace, this is my favourite story of the year. Yeah, this is this scheme to rebuild the Crystal Palace. Crystal Palace, of course, this huge glass palace that was built, uh, first of all, in Hyde Park in 1851, then moved to Sydenham, which subsequently became known as Crystal Palace after the structure. Now, it burnt down in the 1930s, and there are plans to rebuild it that uh, emerged this year using... Chinese money, a Chinese billionaire wants to rebuild this place and use it as an exhibition centre and conference centre. One of the questions that often comes up with the old Crystal Palace is how does a a glass structure catch fire? I think it was the things inside that caught fire and the heat from that caused the glass to crack and the struts to fail. Let's keep moving though. The big South Bank story for many people uh, of the year has been that of the skate park. Who's going to take that one? So the skate park is part of the South Bank complex. It's underneath Queen Elizabeth Hall. It's been used for about 30 years by skateboarders as a kind of impromptu place to go and skate around and spray the walls with graffiti. And it's been become part of the culture of the South Bank, a much cherished part, not just by the skateboarders themselves, but by people passing by and Londoners who like to see this. Now it's going to be moved further upriver, just a few uh, hundred metres uh, underneath Hungerford Bridge as part of a redevelopment of the the South Bank Centre. What's going to be put in place is actually larger and has certain skateboards, uh, bigwigs, if if you can use such a phrase, uh, behind it. So it does have some support from the skateboarding community, but only certain people. There are a lot of people in the skateboarding community who think it's a travesty that this place that has become a cultural centre is having to move uh, just to replace by restaurants and chain shops. And what is it that's got up there knows so much if they're being offered uh, an area that is ostensibly better? I think it's partly just being dictated to and this idea of again erasing a cultural landmark and building it again from scratch somebody said it would be like knocking down the houses of parliament to build a skate park there and then building a fresh houses of parliament from scratch down river somewhere there is an argument as well isn't there that the skate park has lent its cool to the prosperity of the south bank yeah because i think a lot of what goes on at the south bank is highbrow maybe a little bit expensive for for some people this is a, a more uh, relaxed, a kind of the peoples coming together and, and creating their own culture rather than a top-down mechanism. And it won't be lost, but it will have to start from scratch on a on new territory. We're heading towards the autumn of 2013 now, and we've got uh, three interesting creatures about to crop up in the news. A wallaby, a fox, and Tommy Robinson. Rachel Holdsworth, which one are you going for? Well, um, the, the fox. The fox came from um, a release list of 999 calls, which were just ridiculous. And the only one I can remember definitely is that somebody had had rung to say that, in effect, there was a fox in her garden and it was looking at her a bit funny. 
is this a symptom of fox hysteria, which has gripped London for the last few years, hasn't it? It came in and it, and it bit a child and it mauled some... I mean, the horrible incidents in themselves, but um, the, there's been a bit of a, a war against Mr Fox, hasn't there, in the media? It could be that, or it could be just part of... I can't remember the, the specifics of the other calls, but, but there were other ones which were just, you know, tiny things that, that people wanted the, the fire brigade to come out and, and help them with. Somebody called 999 because their pizza hadn't arrived. Uh, what's the uh, wallaby? Yeah, this, I think it's two wallabies, actually. We've had sightings of wallabies in the parks of North London, particularly around the Hampstead and Highgate areas. And I'm, I'm not sure what the outcome of this story was. I don't know where they escaped from, but one was definitely living in Highgate Cemetery and later died, I think, unfortunately. It got caught and I think it injured its foot or something and the vets tried to operate and died, I think, from I think the anaesthetic. That's a curious note that story uh, finished on, wasn't it? <laughs> Uh, we, we can't resist uh, Tommy Robinson, of course. Oh, Tommy Yaxley Lennon Robinson. Um, oh, so, oh, go on, is that true? Well, uh, he was, uh, I believe his original name was Stephen Yaxley Lennon, and he's changed it to Tommy Robinson. Um, I guess it's because it's easier for his followers to remember. His followers, of course, being the English Defence League. Well, in fact, not, not anymore. Oh, of course, of course, yes, he's quit, hasn't he? Yes, he's he he's stepped down, yeah. Didn't he feel that the. Well, I, think, I really think he said that they were getting a bit out of hand and were a bit right-wing for him. <laughs> yes, um, yeah. We all collapsed in laughter, yeah. Yeah, he uh, stepped down from the EDL on the basis that um, some of the EDL were apparently racist thugs. But the story, the Selfridges story, concerned um, Mr Robinson and his friend who went into Selfridges and um, an assistant in Selfridges recognised them and refused to serve them which created sort of a whole big media storm as to whether or not uh, it was okay for a shop assistant to refuse to serve somebody because they were offended by their political beliefs, with various people in London falling on either side of uh, the the argument. Um, So, yes, that's the uh, Selfridges EDL story. What do you feel about that? I don't blame him for not serving him, but probably at the end of the day it was his job. (laughs) Mm, I don't know if we want to linger on Mr Robinson too long because there are bigger um, and more important stories. Um, Let's make a few moments to talk about one of the most interesting stories I think that's run on Londoners this year in amongst a brace of good work. You put out a question on Twitter appealing for information. This is a housing-related story, Rachel. Yes, so one of our other editors, uh, John, decided to ask on Twitter for people's uh, appalling house viewings. It, it It was sparked by a new story. And... I've never seen as many replies ever come in on Twitter. I mean, there were there were three flats without roofs. There was somebody who'd been sold a bed above a washing machine. There was one guy... I don't even know how this works, but there was one guy who saw a place where, to get into the bed, you had to climb through a six-inch gap above the bath. What? <laughs> this is what people said. There was another one where to... There was no lock on the front door, but to get in and out, you had to... Uh, pick up a knife that was resting on, on uh, the, the, the fuse box that was by the door and sort of jam it a little bit. Um, I can genuinely say I was shown a bed set in Paddington where you had to kneel on the bed to use the sink. Yeah, see, there's all this kind of stuff and it's it's ludicrous. And housing is... we. I've personally been talking about this for ages and in the pub and this year everyone just said oh we'll just do something about it then so we've created um, a new section on Londonist purely for housing related stories because as far as I'm concerned housing is London's biggest problem everyone thinks it's transport but that's just because everybody uses transport every day and we have immediate um, experience of it but really it's housing 
we have house prices and rents are going through the roof. We don't have enough affordable housing. The housing that's being built... Right, the problem with... Oh, this is the problem with housing. We could actually... We... Listener, uh, Rachel is getting redder and redder and her head is getting bigger and bigger. I've, I'm fearful. We, we could genuinely have an entire podcast just on housing because uh, the, what I've, I've learned about looking around all these housing stories is that you pull up one thread and a thousand others come out so in june i did uh, some research i looked at whether it's possible to live in london on a low income without benefits and so i calculated working 40 hours a week on minimum wage and london living wage um one person working in, in a household two people working in a household and looking at the cheapest areas in london and there's lots of other complicated issues around that, which I won't go into. Um, but you can find it all on the website. Um, the result was basically, no, you can't do it without benefits. It's just not really possible. And then six months later, I updated it because the London living wage had gone up and the minimum wage had gone up. But so had rents and bills. And I found out that even in the cheapest areas of London, rents had gone up in six months by more than double the annual rise in the London living wage. So just by, you know, a fairly unscientific model, the cost of living in London, the cost of housing in London is vastly outstripping wages. If you're on a low income, it's impossible to do, and it's obviously adding an extra burden onto the taxpayer. Um, The new affordable housing, and I'm putting affordable housing in inverted commas because you can be charged up to 80% of the local market rate for these new affordable houses. That's not affordable like I said, we, I, I could, I could literally talk about this for an hour. Well, perhaps we could take you up on that. And of all the issues that people are feeling in London at the moment, I think you're, you're quite right to say that housing is uh, quite often top of the list. So perhaps we could bring you back in early in the new year and really uh, stick our fingers into some of these issues and see what's going on there. I would be well up for that. Right, we've just nailed it. Housing issue on its way. Let's keep moving through 2013 and another project which has been caused, well it's been in the headlines quite a few times but we've got true figures for it and again this is one of your stories Rachel. Ah the cable car oh, we, we talked about this a couple of months ago didn't we? We, we yeah. rode the cable car. We did um, yeah so the, the cable car between Greenwich and uh, the Docklands which nobody's using, well a few people are using but there are four regular commuters on the cable car They've sold. The, you, you can buy a, a ticket. It's like a like a book of ten tickets, and it gets you a cheaper ride. And they've they they're selling four of them a month. <laughs> and so somebody on Twitter said that this is the only mode of transport in London where you can name all the regular commuters. And they're all journalists as well, just doing it to see if it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> what conclusions do we draw about this? What should happen? To the cable car? Well, the, the reasons that it's sort of come up now is because this is the first time that we've been able to properly um, compare year on year when there hasn't been the Olympics boost in the way. And it's, it's, it's pretty dire. Um, what everyone's saying should happen is, well, first of all, prices need to fall. It's quite expensive and you can't use it on a travel card. Um, or another idea is to simply admit that it's a tourist attraction take it out of TfL subsidy and sell it off to, to a private company and operate it as a tourist attraction. We're going to keep moving and the back end of this year just gone saw a spate of tragic deaths on the roads among cyclists and of course the spotlight was swung around onto Boris Bikes and the, the cycle hire scheme, cycle safety in general but also to other 
road accident related deaths matt yeah well it's awful no matter how you look at this i mean cycling deaths have been at the forefront of the news over the past month have been a particular wave five or six within two weeks and it's also been pointed out that other road users are also having these horrific accidents in far too frequent rates and pedestrians in particular the death the death toll for pedestrians on london's roads is about six times the cycling death toll it really gets the coverage that the cycling deaths do for various reasons um, well, not least, I, sp- I suppose pedestrians don't identify themselves as a group, do they? I guess that's part of it, yeah. And there's there's very few lobby groups uh, involved uh, and, and with big PR machinery behind them. Um, and also people die as pedestrians for different reasons. Um, it could be complete accident it could be someone walking across headphones in who knows um there are a lot of different ways to do it cycling seems to be the same story sorry story over and over again and a story that can be helped by transport infrastructure improvements i think um with pedestrians as you say they don't self-identify as pedestrians but also um everybody at some point in the day is a pedestrian um whereas cycling tends to be more around commuting going from a to b where so I think that's probably why it's less in the headlines. And there are some really horrible facts around pedestrians. I mean, Beth, you read the report and I was appalled to see that you are more likely to be run over on a pedestrian crossing in London than off a pedestrian crossing in London. Genuinely, that, that's just from a Transport for London report. You, yeah, you dug that out, didn't you? Yeah, I, I have to say I was quite surprised about that myself because you get so used to people sort of wandering across the road wherever they feel like it that, you know, you, you assume that crossings are going to be safe for pedestrians but judging from the figures that we looked at, that's not always the case. The other um, high number of uh, pedestrians who are killed are people who are drunk but what they're actually doing at the time that they're drunk and involved in an accident isn't actually specified. Matt, you mentioned the idea of making things safer, getting the infrastructure right. I suppose the easy thing to do in a conversation like this really is to light the blue touch paper and uh, have a a war between the the cycling contingent and the motoring fraternity and fingers pointed. That's not terrifically helpful, but what infrastructure would you like to see in place to make things safer? Well, specifically with the cyclists, there's plenty of schemes which TfL are already looking at. Uh, For example, the Dutch-style partitions so cyclists have their own segregated lane away from the traffic this is being looked at at least 30 junctions now um boris johnson's got behind it but it will take time because you can't as tfl themselves have pointed out you can't just rush these changes in because then another road group might be penalized uh, or endangered by by hasty adjustments the thing about the safer junction review say they're now looking at 30 that's actually down from a couple of hundred Boris Johnson's been talking about this for, for several years and um, Transport for London, it's, I'm actually now going on something that, that John Biggs, London Assembly member, said in the chamber, is that Transport for London are so slow at making any changes. The, the Safer Junction Review was originally meant to take in, like I said, an awful lot more and yet even with all this publicity and even with, with all the, the clear and, and present dangers that are evident on some of these junctions, it's still only 30 that they're going to be looking at. I think as well there's um, an expectation that um, changes will be made much, much quicker than it's possible for them to be made. It was also pointed out recently that um, some of the changes that have been made around the Bow Roundabout have actually put cyclists in more danger because they're they're guiding cyclists into a place on the road where they're um, in the blind spot of vehicles. And indeed, that's where we've seen several of the cycling fatalities. Yeah, Andrew Gilligan, has said the Mayor's Cycling Commissioner, has been making this point that you know you don't want to make changes that are um, 
that make things worse and you know you can't rush these things but equally <laughs> you you look to think there's there's the bow roundabout well that was put in and clearly wasn't done properly and the the cycling superhighways themselves i didn't realize this until um the inquest into the deaths of Brian Dorling and Philippine de Geran Ricard. Brian Dorling died at Bow Roundabout. Um, Philippine de Geran Ricard died. Uh, she was the Boris biker who died. And I didn't realise that unless a cycle superhighway has a white line on the side of it, it has absolutely no legal status. If it's just an unbordered strip of blue paint, it is, in the words of a policeman who testified, just blue paint you have no legal rights to for, for, to be on there as a cyclist on your own that was put in and is clearly a bad solution so tfl needs to decide i mean yeah putting in the right solution however long it takes definitely but don't look at us and say oh we're only putting in good solutions because they haven't well, i'm sorry for a city this size and given that people's lives are at stake here well there are big outfits here making a lot of money from putting their heads together and coming up with schemes maybe they need to work a little faster yeah, I mean, in terms of um, the, the, the blue lanes, um, this is, I think, an, an inherent problem with them in that cyclists believe that they um, they have the right to be in those lanes and, you know, that's where they should be. So they stay they stay in those lanes, regardless of it, if it's the best position for them to be on the road. Um, so it's basically giving cyclists a false sense of security. Mm, well, a, a sense of security that's been seriously punctured uh, towards the end of this year, I think. I, I hope we get this sorted out extremely quickly. We, we get too many of these stories. Um, and it looks as though we're going to be finishing today's episode really with quite a, a brace of transport-related stories, none of them particularly happy, we have to say. The fares are going up, and um, we've heard a little bit about that. Bob Crow has hove into view, and uh, guess what? <laughs> yes, you've guessed it. Yeah, so we, we've finished the um, the year with some good news. The tube's going to run uh, 20 for hours on the weekends yay bad news ticket offices are all going to close from 2015 um basically i think one is being done to pay for the other tfl as always has to find cuts the government is cutting um the central grant so to to deal with that um, they're cutting tickets offices this has been mooted for years ken livingston mooted it originally um boris was elected in 2008 saying that he would reverse it and he did um but it, it's kept cropping up but it's always cropped up with the idea that there would be some kind of, there would be a couple of sort of central offices where people could go to, to do things that you can't do. Because there are still things you can't do at machines, isn't there? Well, you, get, you go out to the window and you say, well, I pressed this, but I didn't mean to do that. And can you just put my money back on there? We haven't heard yet how things like getting an Oyster card for the first time would, would, would work in this scenario. But I'm sure that there's people thinking about that because they can't just launch the system and not have things in place. <laughs> Surely. Oh, that's, that's so lovely interesting. <laughs> yeah, the, the idea is that they, the, the staff will be freed up from freed up uh, from the being behind the ticket machine windows and will be out um, helping people with the ticket machines. Well, quite a lot of them are being freed up from their jobs as well, aren't they? Yes. Uh, I can't remember how many people are being... I think it's about 750 people, but as I understood it, there were no compulsory redundancies. It's... Um, as they as well as it's in management terms redeploying people to other roles yeah i think they phrased it as um anybody who is willing to work flexibly will still have a job at tfl which i mean flexibly could mean right you're doing the midnight shift at oxford circus the midnight till 5 a.m shift at oxford circus i'm sure is going to be fun i wonder whether there's any issue around equalities particularly for disabled workers the, for the ticket machines 
disabled groups, disabled rights groups have often pointed out that um, disabled people find it harder to use ticket machines, so that has actually also been an issue. And the, the threat, of course, is strike action, because Bob's not happy about this. I wonder what it's like at the Crow household. Cornflakes for breakfast, I like Weetabix. Right, that's it. I'm, I'm not doing any work today. We have one more transport story, didn't we? What on earth was it? Oh, fairs, yes. Yes, yes, we should talk about fairs because it's always nice to talk about fairs at this time. Yeah, the fairs, is, the fairs have been a mess. Um, They're going down this year, right? No. <laughs> free? Free? Will it be free? <laughs> yeah, it's been billed as a freeze and it's not... A, well, if you use Oyster, um, pay as you go and you're not travelling um, in Zone 1 or you're not travelling just in Zone 1 or between Zone 1 and 2, um, then yeah, it's actually... Fairs have actually been frozen. That was quite a lot of conditions you popped in there. Yeah, well, basically, you know, it's, it's the because the expensive Zone One ticket is always massively expensive because you know that's your sort of tourist ticket inverted commas or somebody hopping around, so everyone always gets penalised for that. Is it if you're passing through Zone One as well? Um, no, if you sort of if it's like um, Zone Four to One, that's that's still frozen. All that's so you can get into Zone One and still have it frozen, but it's just if you're sort of pootling around Zone One. But they came out really, really late. Normally the the fairs are released sort of September October I think it was once in November and they came out at the beginning of December and I I was convinced I was absolutely certain that this was because they struck a deal with the Treasury uh, to get more money to to hold down fairs because it, travel cards should have been at the um, the national calculation that it's all done it's RPI inflation plus one percent which should have been four point one percent and I was convinced that uh, George Osborne would be chucking in some money and it would all be announced at the autumn statement on the 5th of December but they were released they actually announced them two days before no extra money oyster pay as you go this frozen travel cards going up 4.1% as we thought they would do and it, it was being sold as a 3.1% rise which is a freeze in real terms because that's what inflation is and then two days later George Osborne stood up in the House of Commons and said oh no actually I am going to give a load of money to call down national fares to 3.1% and nobody at City Hall and Transport for London had any idea that was coming. They were so confused. I actually rang up TfL and they were like, yeah, we don't know, sorry. There was some speculation that um, it had been done to get some form of revenge on Boris for his outspokenness this year. <laughs> Which, given that, you know, I mean, they're, they're all Conservatives and Boris did go into the last year's election saying, I'm, I'm a Tory, therefore I can get a better deal from number 10. And now they're just sitting there infighting. It's like watching children. And presumably with the general election, what, 18 months away, 16 months away, something like that, it's only going to get worse, isn't it? I can imagine it being a lot of pain, I think. So City Hall's going to be a lot of fun in 2014 for you, but I can see your enthusiasm already. Oh, yeah, we've got the budget coming up, which is always just a painful, painful time. That's going to be happening at the beginning of, of next year. And, um, yeah, I mean, everybody... Everybody thinks that Boris is positioning himself for a leadership run if the, the Tories don't win outright or win at all in 2015. I, yeah, I have my doubts about that, but he, I think he definitely wants something. Beth, what's your 2014 looking like? Um, yes, I am going to take uh, a more detailed look into the food bank issue and I particularly want to talk to um, some of the food banks around London so I can get an idea of the circumstances under which people are visiting them, um, what's driven them to use the food banks, how they're being referred, um, sort of general nuts and bolts of it really. And Matt Brown, you personally and the writings you contribute to Londonist, what's the new year promising? A big thing we're working on at the moment, uh, so regular readers will know that every month we do this thing called the alphabetical pub crawl where we take the next letter of the alphabet choose a part of town beginning with that letter ask our readers to vote for the best pubs in that area 
and then do a pub crawl with our readers around the best pubs. So we're actually going to develop this idea further into a database of the very, very best pubs across the capital as voted for by our readers, uh, which we're hoping to launch sometime in January or February. So I'm going back to some of these places and doing this hard research of, of uh, trying to remember what, <laughs> what they're like, what ales they have on tap and, and what the ambience is like. And it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. I feel for you. What about the site overall in 2014? Well, it's kind of business as usual. We're still growing as a site. We're doing a lot more emphasis these days on feature style articles beard on some of the the deeply important topics like housing and politics which Rachel and Beth in particular lead on uh, right through to the more cultural things like I know 10 places to find a pub with an open fire or a pool table or something like that um, so feature length articles are a big thing at the moment well of course everything that we've been discussing on today's show can by its very nature be found in the archives on londonist.com uh, particularly some of those stories around cycling housing and you can dig into the detail and get into those for now though i hope you have a relaxing break if you're taking one and that 2014 is all it can be for you from beth parnell hopkins and rachel holdsworth and matt brown and me and quentin wolf goodbye bye, bye. bye. And that's all for this week, and indeed for 2013. Thanks for this week to Rachel Holdsworth, Beth Parnell, Hopkinson and Matt Brown. Thanks too to Mark Barr, Bernie Barkley and Bagayo Restaurant. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm Anne Quentin Wolfe. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.